The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Brought to you by Oppenheimer Funds, the right way to invest. Explore long-term opportunities at OppenheimerFunds.com. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Culture Caucus, the Bloomberg Politics podcast on the intersection of politics and culture. I'm John Heilman. And I am still Will Leach. Hey, Will, how are you? I'm mirthful. I, I, I have the madness of March. It's a, if you don't stop scratching, it will never heal. Oh, my God. <laughs> the tournament has, has been uh, very exciting this year. I'm a, and I'm, I, I know about you, my bracket is destroyed, as it usually is within five to ten minutes of the first game starting. All right, we'll get to that in a minute. I just want to tell you that the great thing about our podcast today, the last time we did Culture Caucus, we tried an experiment. The experiment was that I was in New York in the studio, and Will was at his home in Athens, Georgia, in his um, robe, his bathrobe, in his underwear, Mm -hmm. um, eating Cheetos or Doritos or whatever it is he did, whatever it was that he does down there. And we tried that experiment like a remote podcast. Today, it's a whole different thing. Will, where are you? I'm actually in New York City. I'm where you were sitting last time. The, the seat is still warm. You, you, you cast quite an impression. Yes, and I am not where you were, Will, because first of all, I'm pretty sure your wife would never let me in your house. But second of all, um, I'm, I'm somewhere else. I'm in Florida, Palm Beach, in fact, in a ridiculous place about to engage in some uh, interesting jiggery-pokery with Donald J. Trump. So that's my day today. But uh, in the meantime, uh, I think we can turn to our topic of the day, uh, which is not Donald J. Trump, uh, sportsman and billionaire, but sports itself, in, as you mentioned before, March Madness, the Final Four, the NCAA tournament. It's pretty much the most, um, in some ways, I think for a lot of people, the most exciting sports event of the year, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think it's very universal. You know, you really don't. One of the problems is actually college basketball itself has had is the tournament has almost gotten too popular. Like nobody pays any, any attention to college basketball. It starts around Thanksgiving, but nobody looks at it at all until the tournament. And but the tournament has become this huge universal thing. The ratings have been uh, out of control in a lot of ways. You know, that, that, and part of that is a little bit because of the success of live sports. But the tournament itself, one of the things I personally love about the tournament is this idea that. It is, I find it the most universal American experience tournament in the idea that if you watch professional sports, you're going to see a team from New York and you're going to see a team from Chicago, and maybe you'll see a team from a place as small as Oklahoma City, but that's it. But for the college basketball tournament, for one brief afternoon, Middle Tennessee State can become the biggest story in all of sports. You know, some sleepy, you know, sleepy Louisiana town where Northwestern State is can hit a last second shot and everyone's talking about that. I think that's one of the main reasons it is... The, it, people love college basketball in New York. People co- love college basketball in California. They love cal- college basketball in Louisiana. They love it in Utah. You know, to me, that is one of it's the, the most universally American sport in a way that the and the bracket is simplicity personified. The idea that the j- old joke being that hey, you know, wh- whoever the receptionist that never pays any attention to college basketball is the one that always wins the, the bracket is often true because it is simple. It is easy. I there was a book that came out a few years ago that I contributed to called the 
enlightened bracketologist, and it made the argument that you could put every single life debate into a 16 or 60-14 bracket, and at the end of it, you could resolve it all. Like, who is the true god? Put the 64 most popular gods all together in a battle, and at the end, you find out who wins. And so I think that is one of the reasons people love the tournament so much. It is a thing that everyone can understand, and if you win, you keep going, and if you lose, you're you're done, your college career is over, and I think the emotion involved in that is, I think, pretty powerful for people, even if they don't really watch college basketball the rest of the year. Right. It's like it's like a thing that everyone can. It's it, I think it's demo, it's 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 small d democratic in a variety of ways, right? That you're suggesting. One of which is that like everyone can understand it. Another thing is that everyone can play, right? You don't actually need to know anything about college sports or college basketball to sit down with a bracket in front of you and just pick a bunch of teams. You can do that at random if you want. And for a lot of people, that is in fact how they play. Or they just pick all the the lowest seeds or all the highest seeds or whatever it is they want to do. But they can feel kind of invested in the game. Um, in that in the tournament in that way um, and as you say the bracket kind of tells all I, I, I seem to remember you did a piece once about this right for bloombergpolitics.com about the about the t- about the the, the, the the how the bracket how you could pretty much bracketize anything didn't you yeah, we also did a piece where we looked at which candidate was stood for which team, <laughs> and uh, I, I made I think the big mistake I made in that was I did not have. Ted Cruz as Duke because Grayson Allen who is the best player for Duke quite famously if you ever go on Twitter during a Duke basketball game he looks almost eerily like a young Ted Cruz <laughs> to the point that that actually it, it's it, it has become a, like a bit of a meme how much they look they look like one another but yeah I think another fun part about the bracket too is not only can everyone fill it out but now the you know the tournament has become a big such a big thing every year and the act of filling out a bracket that there's certain conventions that everyone knows to do you know like everyone feels like they have to have a 14 team beat a three seed even though no one knows who any of these teams are and no one's watched it like the, you, you'll hear a lot of people fill out a bracket you saw Obama actually say this when he's filling out his bracket with Andy Katz uh, every year, which is, he's like, oh, I, I, I'm feeling this upset. Like, he couldn't name a player on either team, <laughs> nor, nor any of us can. But there is this sense that you feel in a, feel a bracket. You look at Hawaii play California, you're like, eh, I don't know, I'm feeling Hawaii here. And then it turns out you Hawaii wins, and then all of a sudden you're patting yourself on the back for getting Hawaii right, even though you have never watched a game with either Hawaii or California all year. And I think that's satisfying for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, yes, 100% right. And one thing I, I think we should say at this point, just because you have written so many brilliant things in this vein that it's useful to say, you can find those things, the stories that we just mentioned, at BloombergPolitics.com, where you can also find this podcast uh, when it appears uh, every week or two weeks or whenever we have a chance to do it. Um, that's where you can find it. You can also find it where else, Will? You can find it on SoundCloud, and you also find it on iTunes. We always recommend for people to, to get through iTunes and make sure to give us a nice review. If you give us a nice review, it makes it a lot easier for the Apple, all sorts of Apple quant uh, things will let will push out the podcast for people. So it, it makes it easier for people to find the show. So if you review the show on iTunes, it's a great way for people to find it. So please subscribe and review if you like us. And if you don't, yeah. don't say a word. Right. I was going to say, it's hard not to like this podcast when it involves Will Leach. I mean, and plus, if you don't like it, just say something nice anyway, because, you know, if Will, you know, if you say mean things, it hurts Will's feelings. And then, you know, we have problems. Um, the thing about the bracket, it seems to me, when you think about politics, is that the, the power of the bracket has become such that 
we now talk about presidential politics in the context of the brackets, right? This is like now a convention. It wasn't this way when I started covering politics that we talked about, you know, there's an anti-establishment bracket. There's a, 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 an establishment bracket. There's a populist bracket. There's an evangelical bracket. All of the, you know, the notion that there are lanes, right? That's another version of the bracket is essentially that there are lanes that you're trying to win, you know, you're trying to win your you're 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 clustered with a bunch of of competitors that are not the same, and and you ultimately you don't have to win against the field at the outset. What you have to do is you have to beat whoever it is that's in your bracket, and that eventually you'll eventually somehow get yourself to the semifinals or the quarterfinals or eventually into the finals. But that it's one of the interesting things about it this year is that there are those who argue that one of the biggest fallacies of presidential politics is this notion, the notion of the bracket, because you had a lot of Republican candidates who seemed to think that it wasn't their job to take on Donald Trump. It was their job to take on whoever was in their lane or in their bracket. And that what that meant was that instead of attacking the front runner, everybody ended up attacking each other, which basically allowed Trump to go on to basically dominate the race and now put himself on the precipice of winning the Republican nomination because people had this kind of misconceived notion that the nomination fight was, in fact, like the NCAA Final Four, like the, the NCAA Hoops Tournament. Yeah, you know, you heard people refer to the kitty table debate, but you also referred to it as the play-in game, which is another bracket convention now. There's the play-in game that they play in Dayton just to actually get in the tournament. And you did see that. You saw this idea that yeah, the, the lanes, the pockets, the segments, all of it. I actually did a piece for us uh, starting out where I actually did when we were trying to figure out who was going to make the bit, debate stage and who was going, you know, when they were figuring out the polls, who was even good, where they were going to be standing. We actually did a bracket. There were 16. <laughs> there were actually, if you didn't count Jim Gilmore, you had 16. You had a perfect bracket in a lot of ways. And, and no offense to Jim Gilmore, but we felt comfortable leaving him out of that. So I feel like, uh, yeah, there is. And I think part of it, too, this has happened a lot more in the last eight years. I would argue in part because of President Obama, because President Obama not only is famously a sports fan, he famously gives every year, he lets Andy Katz, a reporter for ESPN, who, who worked on this for a very long time, the minute Obama, before Obama was elected, he did an interview with him saying, listen, if you win, I would like to have you do a bracket on SportsCenter every year. And Obama, who famously loves hanging out with athletes a lot more than he likes hanging out with politicians, he agreed to do it. So every year he's done, he's filled out his bracket live. And I think it has become a tradition now. For eight years, the leader of the free world has gone on national television and said, here's who I'm picking in this game. So I think it's helped. The tournament has always been big, but I think that has definitely helped really mainstream it uh, in, in kind of even the popular lexicon and, and discourse. Yeah, I think that's true. And one of the things that's kind of funny about Obama, right, is you made an, a totally accurate observation just now, which is that um, Obama cares a lot more about sports or enjoys sports and 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 particularly hoops a lot more than he does uh, any of the other uh, many of many of the other uh, 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 activities that are required of him as president of the United States. And there's no doubt. I mean, that you talk to people who know Obama, and and he would be most nights. You know, he doesn't go back up to his study and turn on uh, CNN or turn on. Uh, MSNBC, or let alone obviously turn on Fox News. He turns on ESPN. You know, he wants to watch Mike and Tony. He wants to watch uh, you know, Sports Center. He is obsessively focused on sports, and especially so in basketball season. And 
uh, you know, people often in Washington and in the political class criticize Obama for that. You know, you've heard it's one of the most common refrains of his presidency, which is, you know, why doesn't Barack Obama go up to Capitol Hill and schmooze the congressman more? Why doesn't Barack Obama have people over for dinner more? Why doesn't he take people to Camp David? He doesn't understand the social aspects of the job. And I have often, you know, he famously at a White House Correspondents Dinner made this point about, you know, where he made a joke where he said, you know, people say you should have a drink with Mitch McConnell. And he paused and then he said, why don't you have a drink with Mitch McConnell? And I always feel like even though the political class criticizes Obama for being like that, that they totally misunderstand part of the nature of his appeal, which is, in fact, that he would rather watch SportsCenter than hang out with a bunch of crusty old white guys on Capitol Hill. That's like what most normal people are like. You know, we. I, what would you ask me? Would I rather go to a NCAA uh, basketball tournament game? Would I rather watch SportsCenter? Would I rather watch Chris Berman or go hang around with, you know, Jeff Sessions on Capitol Hill? Give me the sports any day. And I feel like for a lot of you know, normal Americans, they look at Obama and it's kind of part of his relatability that he is a sports nut and that he is more interested in stuff that normal Americans are interested in than he is in doing, in some aspects, his job. Yeah, and you know he has a natural understanding of the game and understanding what it means to be a fan in a lot of ways. You know, I think you know, of course, the tradition of presidents hosting teams at the at the Oval Office when the, at the White House when they win. You know, he's a Bulls fan. He's a White Sox fan. He always gets he always gets in this like you know if you if you I were the president and I had to congratulate a baseball team who was not the St. Louis Cardinals for winning a World Series, I would do so through gritted teeth. And I think you see that from Obama, like that natural kind of fandom that he has. And you saw him when he filled out the bracket. It's got uh, the first year I, I became I write a piece every year after he does his bracket. The first year it was stunning. He seemed to know like the backup point guards for Wichita State. It was really kind of amazing right, right, how much yeah. information and it, it, that went beyond just, hey, Mr. President, you have 10 minutes with Andy Katz. Here's a couple index cards. What to know? Like, it was clear there was a depth of knowledge to that. I've always found it very amusing that when David Cameron was uh, uh, came, they went to not only a basketball game together, they went to the play-in game in Dayton between Western Kentucky and Mississippi Valley State. Which, 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 it's like just the nerdiest nerd game. Like nobody's watching that game except for really hardcore hoop fans. And it led to this, what I think is one of my favorite Obama sports moments. It was actually turned out to be a very close game. You know, these are two very tiny schools where, you know, they never get any national attention. And it came, and there was this great comeback by Western Kentucky, and the point guard for Western Kentucky hit a three-pointer and started trash-talking Obama because he had picked Mississippi Valley State, and it was just this great moment, and then you cut to David Cameron looking so confused and so bewildered as to what's going on. To me, that was, there's a natural affinity and understanding that he has in the sport that is, I think, very relatable, and I think people people understand. They might not understand. Uh, they certainly don't understand schmoozing in Washington. They certainly don't understand a lot of things that goes on. But you know, the, for a guy that's often considered somewhat cold and maybe not that social a person, he feels like a guy you actually could go watch a game with in a lot of ways. And and right. that whole proverbial have a beer with, I think that's his thing. Right. Yeah. It's instead of like having a beer with Obama because he doesn't really drink beer. You know, he has the occasional, occasional martini, but not very often doesn't drink that much. You know, that that kind of like you're not he's not the guy who you're going to go have a beer with, but he is the guy who you might go to see a basketball game with. Right. If you were if you're uh, the average American. And I think, you know, that's one of the keys to his relatability. And when you know, when you think about this Republican field that now uh, currently exists, you got Donald Trump, who is sitting about 10 minutes up the road from me at Mar-a-Lago. Um, who, uh, you know, pretends to be 
maybe is. He is. Like, let's be honest. He is. He's a golfer. Um, his claims to have won a bunch of tournament uh, championships, uh, you know, I'm not sure. Or what, what is he called? What are they called? Club championships, right? Trump's, cl- Trump's, Trump's, Trump's claims to have won a bunch of club championships, often challenged by the duffers uh, among us. People wonder how many of those club championships he's actually won. But, you know, he's a golfer, right? But he seems to evince no real interest in, in the more populous sports. Um, you got uh, John Kasich, you know, who is a little bit of a, an Ohio State fan. There's no doubt about that. That kind of comes through and makes him feel somewhat relatable. Ted Cruz, completely incomprehensible, the idea of Ted Cruz in a basketball game or a baseball game, right? Which I think is one of the problems that Cruz has. You know, you made the point to me before we did this podcast that we were like waiting to see, you know, what the what the brackets of all the, the uh, presidential candidates would be. And that in the end, like really none of them t- filled out their brackets, which is, you know, kind of a kind of a little bit surprising and unexpected. And I wonder if it points to a deeper problem that some of them might have in relating to the American people. Yeah, because four years ago they did. Romney did. Uh, eight years ago McCain did. Like th- this was a fairly common thing, I think, in election. And, and you know, to be fair, there's a lot going on right now. And Trump, you know, the the problem is Trump almost can't fill out a ballot because it won't be perfect, <laughs> and that would that would right. that would hurt the way he would speak. He'd be like, "It would be the most beautiful bracket. Every game's going to be right." So you know, there's something about the admission that eventually he's going to predict some of these games wrong that is almost off message <laughs> for Trump in a little right. bit. He can't actually predict games because he might get them wrong so um I, I think there's part of that and but you know it's it's funny trump's you know trump people in sports have been dealing with trump for years just because through boxing through the usfl there's a very famous doc, uh, 30 for 30 documentary that makes a i think pretty convincing argument that donald trump is one of the primary reasons that there is not a, another secondary sports league in a, a football league in a country that loves football so much the usfl his, he probably is the reason that that league ultimately failed. So, you know, and to the point where the guy that made that movie still gets angry letters from Trump all the time. So certainly, uh, but, you know, he, he for among like boxing fans and boxing has lost a little bit of influence, but among boxing fans, Trump is considered like a character the way that Mike Tyson or Vander Holyfield is. So I think he has a natural thing with that. But yeah, you're right. I think that the the, dem- the small d democratic na- notion of the tournament is not something that uh, that that re- people really associate with Trump, and I don't think he really would associate himself a lot with. Right. I'm sort of imagining uh, when Obama's uh, bracket, when the tournament is over, uh, and Obama's bracket, like so many people's brackets, you know, will end up being you know rendered kind of shredded by by the realities of the tournament. You're kind of imagining Trump sending a tweet that says, you know, pathetic poser Obama's bracket, you know, totally misses the final four. Sad exclamation point. Um, you know, that, even though Trump, of course, didn't fill out a bracket of his own. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in what you think, Will, about this, which is, you know, I think part of the democratic small d nature of the tournament is that it is uh, not only a tournament in which uh, unexpected uh, things occur, you know, and there are upsets and tiny teams you've never heard of from places you couldn't find on a map that suddenly rise up and seize the nation's attention for, for one game or, or potentially for, for more than one game if they go on a little bit of a run. That's a big part of it. But the other part of it, it seems to me, is that it is, you know, people perceive this to be amateur sports and that like the the, the, the kids that are out there playing or college students, they're not getting paid. They're playing for the love of the game. And that, and that at least in terms of how a lot of people see the NCAA tournament, they see it as being a pure kind of form of sports competition than they see the NFL and the Super Bowl. And then they see 
the the World Series, then they see uh, the NBA, the NBA Finals, the NBA playoffs that go on forever and and play all these kind of games in order to just suck more commercial ad revenue out of the uh, out of the the world of consumer marketers. Um, but of course, it's it's ridiculous on some level to think about the NCAA tournament as being a pure form of sports because it is just as big a business as any of the previous things that I mentioned. I'm curious, you know, do you think there's a point where, given how big the tournament has gotten now and how commercial and how media, how much media saturation there is around covering it, is there? Do you think that the tournament risks some kind of a backlash at some point where people will look up and say, you know what, this is just another huge corporate uh, uh, hype hype fueled, hype-saturated event, just like everything else. There's no real distinction between this and professional sports. I'm done with it. I think that the tournament has edged close to that line more and more as the years have gone on. Remember, you're not a sponsor of the NCAA tournament. You are one of the NCAA's corporate champions, which is actually what they call them. They, they, uh, Infinity, I think, buys like a certain ad to let them be called a corporate champion. You know, and it was, it was funny. The, but I don't think it's hit a critical mass because, frankly. It, the NCAA tournament has the same advantage the NFL has is when it comes to their concussion issue. Yeah, we really are upset, and it's really upsetting that how corrupt the sport is. But wow, what a shot. That, what an amazing shot that was. What a terrific game. And you just forget it when you're watching the game. You know, I, I, was at, uh, I was at the Final Four. I'll be going to the Final Four in Houston again this year. And I was at the Final Four two years ago when it was in Arlington, you know, at Jerry Jones' diamond-encrusted, uh, you know, white-collar strip club of a, of a, a football stadium. And... You know, the billion-dollar stadium and the places, they're selling seats that you can't even see the court for $200. And it's just an insane, insane spectacle in a place that does not even have any college basketball. And it's just this massive thing. And Connecticut won the championship that year. And after the game, Shabazz Napier, who had just been interviewed in the New York Times, saying that he was unable to afford dinner because he did not get enough money from the university. Like, we went to bed hungry because they only gave him such a stipend to be able to eat, is just is, is on the, the court being interviewed about leading Connecticut to the championship. And he actually says, he says, this is, this is an unfair system. He does the thing that people have been trying to get athletes to do, to kind of rise up and stand up and try to submit, make a difference. It's the biggest stage he'll ever have. He, his big moment with the mic, this is what he wants to say. And everyone went, Hmm. And then moved on and forgot about it because the games are so fun. And I think that that is the ultimate thing I yet to see in any actual sport. You know, I've been covering sports a long time. I cover all sports. You hear constantly while it's getting too corporate and fans are getting upset about it and they do not like to hear that tickets are too expensive and in the pros, the athletes are being paid too much or it's greedy owners or the game's unsafe or all of these terrible, terrible things. And then the games start and just everybody forgets about it. <laughs> and, and I think the NCAA tournament is, uh, benefits from that in a very similar way that the NFL does. Right. I'm, I'm just curious. I know we're going to talk in a minute to, to your friend um, and, and one of the writers, one of the sports writers I admire the most, Sally Jenkins from the Washington Post. We're going to have a little chat with her about the economics of, of, the, of the college of college sports broadly and, and more specifically related to the NCAA tournament. But I'm curious as to whether you think at this point um, the, 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 the movement, the argument, the sentiment for uh, that relates to the thing you were just talking about, which is, you know, these college kids are basically exploited in a, in a really gratuitous, um, open kind of way by the NCAA, which is, is a gigantic corporate uh, money-making behemoth. 
Um, these kids don't get paid, uh, as you said, with Napier, you know, can often find themselves in a situation where they can't afford to buy dinner. Um, it seems like one of the great, to me, obvious injustices in our in the world of sports that these uh, that this takes place. Do you have a sense uh, that that movement, that sentiment, the arguments that are increasingly being made for paying college uh, athletes, do you think that that movement has a chance of, of actually breaking through and succeeding and changing the world at some point soon? Or are we still like a long, long, long way off from that? Uh, actually seeing any kind of change in that way? I think that there's much more public discussion of it than there's ever been. Uh, Joe Nocera from the New York Times wrote a book called, just uh, covert a book, excuse me, called, uh, called in, in, uh, excuse me, Indentured, uh, which I actually reviewed for the New York Times. And uh, he wrote a book about, that I think has helped, kind of talked about how much of a major movement this has become. Jay Billis, who is the probably the lead college basketball personality on ESPN, has been a loud and very vocal proponent of, of doing something to pay athletes and actually pointing out a lot of the hypocrisy of the NCAA. That said, the one thing that generally all of these movements tend to have lacked are a practical plan. <laughs> and, and I think, I think uh, more and more people are agreeing, yep, this seems wrong, this seems unfair. But they're not actually – it's hard to get people to agree on what they should do, you know, on because, on, you know, if you open the door, you know, if you open the door to athletes being paid, then do you pay the – men's do you play do you play the women's lacrosse team that's not a uh, at school that does not bring in money but still there's a title nine issue that comes with that and and how do you play football has more players so how do you pay more of them there's it's because there's the NCAA has been so standoffish to any idea of this at all it's hard there's no like central authority to put to, to cobble together a plan so I think that sentiment is getting more aware of kind of the fundamental hypocrisies but I don't know if we're actually any closer to coming up with a way to actually pay them because I think, uh, and which is strange, and it becomes more and more of a stark thing every year because, you know, 20 years ago, players weren't getting paid then either, and it may have been unfundamentally unfair, but now the money has just exploded to such a dramatic amount that I think people just can't help but notice. But the question is, how, how do you dole that money out? And there's, there's really, not only is there no consensus, there's really no one to appeal to to make such a move even happen. Right. Uh, I'm just curious. Well, I haven't seen your bracket. Um, who do you have uh, winning it all? I, like the president, have Kansas. I have Kansas winning it all. Um, I had Michigan State in the national championship game against Kansas, but let's not talk about that because they lost in the first round to Middle Tennessee State. My bracket is not doing well. My, my Like most people uh, that work professionally in sports, my bracket is terrible. Right? At this point, I'm losing to my son, who is four. So, so that that uh, that happens pretty right. Well, I was just like William. Do you like Providence or USC? USC. And then the, the, just by doing that, by saying random letters and words he does not recognize, he is ahead of me. So that is that is how my bracket is going. The pre- oh, Obama's funny thing is actually you know he's done this bracket every year. He got the first champion correct. His first season, he uh, uh, picked I believe it was Connecticut uh, the, the the first season, and he's not gotten one right since. So this year, Kansas. He, he actually joked when he did his telecast with Andy Katz this year that uh, he told Kansas coach Bill Self, don't disappoint me, a lot of pressure on you. And it was funny, he had a brief moment where he realized, oh wait, I'm the president. And like turned around and said, went back to the camera and said, no Bill, I'm just kidding, I don't mean to put any pressure on you. Like it was funny that like he had a moment where he was so into being a sports fan that he had, he's like, oh wait, I'm the president and I just told a coach not to disappoint me. I need to like roll that back a little bit. It was a very kind of amusing yeah. moment. That's hilarious. So you and uh, you and the president, your team, Kansas, are just, you're, the team that you have picking, winning it all, are still alive. As of the time of this recording, I believe Kansas is playing on the night before 
Culture Caucus will actually hit the streets. And so by the time someone, uh, anybody listens to this, it's possible that Kansas could have been knocked out of the tournament by Maryland. Um, my, just for the record, I always pick Wisconsin to win it all in honor of my father, who's a University of Wisconsin graduate. And by the time anybody listens to this podcast, Wisconsin will still be alive, playing Notre Dame on Friday, the 25th. Um, hopefully, uh, Wisconsin, you know, I've picked them every year to go all the way, and they never do. So maybe this year I'll be luckier, and then the process I'll get to beat both you and President Obama, and that would be pretty much like the best thing that's ever happened to me in my entire life. I don't think that would be very – Wisconsin won in the most exciting way fashionable uh, possible in the second round. So as a Big Ten guy, as a University of Illinois guy, when Illinois used to make tournaments, but now I have to root for other Big Ten teams. So I am for Bucky Badger as well. All right. Go Badgers is all I have to say right now. So, Will, you and I are going to take a little break right now, and then we're going to come back with Sally Jenkins of the Washington Post. How do you feel about that? Uh, Sally's the best. I can't wait to talk to her. All right. Off to break now. Brought to you by Oppenheimer Funds, the right way to invest. Explore long-term opportunities at oppenheimerfunds.com. Welcome back to the Culture Caucus Podcast. This is John Heilman. I'm here with... The Will Leach, perpetually. uh, The great Will Leach um, here, and we're talking politics and college basketball, the co- politics of bracketology. Uh, Will and I, having exhausted ourselves in the first half of the show, figured we'd bring in reinforcements, someone way smarter, way more knowledgeable, and just way more enjoyable and convivial than we are. That's Sally Jenkins from The Washington Post. Sally, how are you? I'm dangerous. What do you mean convivial? <laughs> okay. okay. Uh, she's going to throw a dagger to the heart of Will Leach, hopefully, and this, um, if, this might be the end of the Culture Caucus podcast. Um, Sally, I have a question for you just to start things off, which is, so um, Will has this argument, which we've been kind of um, uh, teasing with in the first half of the show, which is the notion that part of the reason that uh, the, the NCAA tournament is so popular is that it's the most small D democratic of all big sports events. What do you think about that? Well, absolutely. I mean, I think that like college football, uh, you know, there's not this, um, you know, sort of conspiracy to keep the have nots, you know, away from the bowl of cash. Uh, you know, you see Northern Iowa and Stephen F. Austin. Uh, you know, being as popular or the Middle Tennessee's being as as gripping and as popular uh, at tournament time as uh, as the major conference schools, which you don't get in college football. I mean, you really uh, the small schools in college football have to fight for their lives, you know, annually. And I, I don't. Uh, it, it, you watch the NCAA basketball tournament every year, and you wonder why the college football people don't wise up. Yeah. But, yeah, and you know, one thing I, I've noticed a lot in the tournament too, I think we saw this a little bit with kind of the fiasco of the selection show this year. The fact that the selection show, which is really just the listing of 60, 68 teams' names, took two hours and there was a bubble watch and it became this like big, massive corporate event that took so long that eventually it just leaked and everyone cheered. Everyone was very happy to see CBS lose money from this. Um, what, I'm curious. You know, I've, I've reviewed uh, Joe Nocera's uh, new book, uh, Indentured, for the New York Times, and I th- we were discussing this kind of ongo- this movement that's been kind of building the idea when there's so much money in the game uh, to pay the players or to give them a, a larger stipend. Do you think that's happened more? The, one of the reasons that's been more of a push in the last 10 years or so is because money has exploded so much in the sport, and do you think there's a feasible way to actually pay these players? Yes, I think it's exploded because of the, you know, the the the, the sheer uh, numbers. 
I mean, if you look at, uh, the, we did a great series in the Washington Post on the, the finances behind college athletics. So in the last decade, uh, you know, money has just, flo- you know, just flowed into the coffers of these conferences and universities uh, to the tune of, you know, like $49 million in increased salary increases for non-coaching employees at the major conference schools. Um, we're talking, you know, deputy athletic directors, administrators, ticket managers are all making six figures. And you look at the gap between that and the NCAA's, you know, grudging refusal for so many years to even fully cover the cost of a scholarship. So it's the unseemly gap between what people are earning, what the adults are earning off the backs of the athletes, and what the athletes themselves are getting. Now, the athletic scholarship is hugely valuable. I mean, it's worth a quarter of a million dollars in a lot of cases. Uh, the problem is if the athletes aren't getting the full worth of that scholarship. Uh, you know, is it feasible to actually pay them? Uh, I don't think it's feasible to do that without wrecking all the non-revenue sports. Uh, you know, I don't know how you decide who to pay. You know, do you pay freshmen as much as seniors? Do you pay starters more? than bench players, if you're going to pay uh, college basketball players, do you pay women's basketball players that uh, happen to play for the handful of programs that actually produce revenue, and if so, how much? Um, you know, I, I just I don't find – I think that the class of players we're talking about is so huge. I don't know how you create an equitable payment system. So I think what you really ought to be doing is enhancing the value of the athletic scholarship enhancing the value of their their experience on campus, um, enhancing the value of their health benefits, extending, you know, the length of the scholarship, extending the length of their health care after they leave the school, if they leave with injuries, that sort of thing. So Sally, let me ask you, let me, let me just step back and ask you this question about, so like Will mentioned the Jono Serra book. For anybody who doesn't know, there's Jono Serra, he's a columnist at the New York Times. He's been a business writer um, most of his life, um, he, and he's really taken up this cause. The book is called Indentured, and the subtitle is The Epic Scandal at the NCAA. Um, so just let me ask you this question to, as a kind of a precursor to some of the things you just said, which is, do you agree with the premise, the notion that essentially what the NCAA does here is turn athletes into indentured servants, and is it a scandal? Uh, no, I don't agree with the premise of indentured servitude. Yes, it's a scandal. <laughs> uh, it's a scandal, but not on those terms. You know, again, the pay increases for athletic directors and uh, deputy athletic directors. The pay increases over the last decade, that's a scandal. Uh, the, the, you know, the spiraling of coaches' salaries, uh, particular, particularly for guys who are proven cheaters or who are proven to um, you know, support academic fraud, uh, that's a scandal. Jim Beheim, you know, um is a, a great guy, a great coach, but he's also on his watch. You know, there have been some serious uh, academic fraud issues at Syracuse, okay? So, uh, you know, as I say, the, the athletic scholarship is one of the most valuable commodities in this country. It is a, it, it's the greatest thing since the GI Bill, the athletic scholarship, in terms of extending opportunities for college educations, debt-free, I might add, um, you know, to people who otherwise wouldn't have them. So, you know, the trick is not to compromise that. The trick is to, as I say, enhance it and make sure that those athletes are getting the full value of that incredible opportunity. Is, is, there a, is there a fear, though, 
because I agree, I the the amount of money that's gone into athletic directors and uh, and university presidents and coaches, specifically coaches, it does seem scandalous to me. But the reason all that money is going there, the reason they have all that money, is because the finance in the sport has exploded and the players aren't getting it, so it has to go somewhere. Like you know, Alan Schwartz in in Indentured, one of the uh, the people profiled in the book, talks about how he he makes an argument that yes, when when you think of of, of other uh, quote non revenue sports at at schools, do you pay them? Do you not pay them? His argument is a almost it's strange. Uh, uh, you've seen Jonathan Chait in New, York, in New York Magazine kind of fight back against this idea in a similar way, saying. You know, he he uh, Schwartz sees almost as a free market system. He thinks these athletes should be able to sell their jerseys and get endorsement money, and and almost be independent operators, but not get paid from the universities. And therefore, you know, you see this with the video games, like why their likenesses are not using video games anymore. Do you th- do you would you support that? Do you think that's I a way? Completely support that. And okay. I think, I think it's the answer. In addition to some some, you know, NCAA reform. Uh, and some cost control, you know, forcing athletic directors to answer to the same budgetary constraints that, say, the English department does. You know, why should an athletic department at a public university be allowed to run up huge deficits? Why should they be allowed to operate in the red? And yet college presidents let them do it all the time, okay? They don't let their engineering department or their law school do that. So that's one thing. But the free market system, absolutely, if you're Johnny Manziel or if you're you know, Malcolm Brogdon at Virginia. You should absolutely be able to profit off New Jersey the same way that, you know, Natalie Portman could profit off of her actress career while she was a student at a university, you know. Um, nobody told Jodie Foster, you can't make money while you're at Yale, you know. Um, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous that we tell these people because of the nature of your talent and the nature of the demand for that talent, you can't profit off it for four years while you're in school or two years or whatever it is. We don't do that with any other class of students. Right, now, Sally, I just want to I want to point out that just now you attributed Jenny, you noted that Jodie Foster went to Yale, but for some reason didn't note that Natalie Portman went to Harvard. I detect some kind of anti <laughs> some kind of anti Cambridge bias in that uh, in that. I knew she'd gone to an Ivy. I couldn't remember which one it was. Yeah, yeah. I'm always I'm always for uh, for for uh, discriminating against Harvard in any uh, capacity that is possible. Um, but the school that I'm always mo- even more interested in praising is, as Will knows well, my alma mater, Northwestern University, where, uh, as you will well recall, uh, the Northwestern football team. Uh, brought a lawsuit and tried to unionize um, just a couple years ago. The NLRB ruled on that. It seemed like a pretty much like a landmark ruling at the time. I just, I'm, I'm, it's still a little confusing to me exactly what the NLR, NLRB's ruling meant for the future of this movement. So maybe you can just talk about that a little bit um, and break down wh- why that suit was important and how it fits into the argument we're discussing and what the future is relevant to that. Because it seems like the unionization thing would also be part of the way in which you would resolve some of the economic issues that you're raising. Well, I think that I haven't read the NLRB decision in a while, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forget the specifics of it. But essentially what they ruled is that college athletes aren't employees. Um, it, you know, and, and I happen to agree with that ruling. I think that if you define college athletes as labor uh, it actually doesn't serve them well uh, because you get into, a, you know, a huge, you know, all of a sudden is the college athletic scholarship taxable? Uh, you know, how do you define the class of employees? How do you define, if you 
want to get into collective bargaining um, as college athletes? Are you really, um, do you really believe collective bargaining is the best way to protect all college athletes? I mean, you could make a strong argument collective bargaining has done nothing but hurt NFL players uh, over and over and over again. Just look at what Tom Brady's going through with Roger Goodell simply because collective bargaining gives the NFL this sort of magic cloak. So I just am not convinced that defining themselves as labor or employees is really the way to go. I think it would destroy the athletic scholarship and destroy opportunities um, and scholarships rather than, than create them. So that's, that's my main thing. I, I you know, and, and the NLRB happens to have agreed with that for their own, you know, uh, labor law reasons. But again, okay, so ask yourself if college athletes want to unionize, what is the class, like if they are a class action, what is the class? How do you define that class? How many athletes does it, does it include? Um, you know, what do you do about athletes at small schools? What do you do about swimmers and divers? What do you do about lacrosse players? You know, they don't really belong. They don't share the same interests a lot of times um, as college football players or college basketball players. College football and basketball players uh, – at major schools, a lot of times tend to ask, well, why should we be supporting women swimming? I, I feel as though implicitly you're saying something that I couldn't disagree with more, which is that Northwestern students had done something wrong. And so <laughs> no. under normal circumstances, I, I would end this interview uh, in, a, in a crisp and perfunctory way. But, but instead, I'll let Will continue. Uh, well, you didn't hire Lovey Smith, so that's a problem that Northwestern did not do, yes. unlike Illinois. Uh, I would like one last question for you, <laughs> Sally. Um, th- there's an argument to be made that the kind of underground economy of sports is actually the most efficient way to do this. And the idea, I remember uh, Sports Illustrated had its big Oklahoma City, uh, excuse me, Oklahoma State expose a couple of years ago where it showed that athletes were were uh, be given were given a ton of money and were encouraged and there were women that were encouraged to be with them and and there all of these kind of things that they were trying to sell these players using actual monetary value and you know you see it a lot of SEC schools boosters giving money uh, athletes some money under the table now that is of course against NCAA rules in fact it could argue one of the my primary reason the NCAA was invented in the first place was to stop stuff like that. But there is also a school of thought, you saw this with Todd Gurley in Georgia, the idea that as long as the NCAA makes these things illegal, players are going to get paid. And that mo- there is money that's going to go to these players anyway. There's a free market happening. We're just not allowed to see it. Do you th- like there? And there is a school of thought that people, I think, are afraid to say too loud publicly because it seems against the idea of collegiate athletics that – that's actually the most fair system is the idea that, yeah, you can't because there's so hard to implement a system that pays everyone. You almost have to do it underground. Do you think do you think that the game has gotten large enough to where if it's certainly in an, an, an elegant solution, it's one that at least gets the, the player something? Absolutely. I mean, I, I happen to agree. I, I think I think throwing op- it, all of college athletics open to a free market system. Uh, in terms of, um, you know, outside of the school making these payments, um, if you let if you let boosters pay players, what really is wrong with that? Yeah. I mean, what is the <laughs> harm? What is the huge harm to college athletics if some rich guy uh, in a college town, um, you know, wants to slap a hundred dollar bill in the palm of a college football player? Like, I've never understood what the what's the danger there. Is the danger that Oh no! We'll create a class of haves and have-nots. 
Well, I mean, that's already there. Um, so I, I'm with you. I, I think that the free market, it's inelegant and it, it, it scares people, but I really think it actually might give schools some leverage because, uh, you know, once you do that, uh, you know, staying eligible uh, becomes uh, not just some sort of process of fraud, but it's, it's in the interest of the student-athlete. It's in the interest of the player to maintain his eligibility uh, because you can tie it to his income. I mean, if he doesn't stay eligible, he loses income. So all of a sudden, he's got a much better motivation than this you know, charade to me. I, I, um, I, I happen to like, you know, I spent years opposing this idea of paying players in free market system and stuff, and, and, and Jay Billis was one of the guys, his arguments are so brilliant, he's one of the guys that basically convinced me, where is the harm? What would be really damaged, you know, by basically just taking this underground economy above ground? Uh, it, it makes everything more honest, everything. And all of a sudden, the real imposters, um, you know, are revealed. Uh, if, you know, I happen to think we should go even further. I happen to think that basically you should force all coaches to teach classes to the general <laughs> student body. If you can't come up with a syllabus and, and, and teach a class worth teaching to the general student body, uh, you shouldn't be teaching, you know, you shouldn't be at a university. You know, right. I, I, I just, I really think that a culture of honesty is the best solution for college athletics. And it's the one thing they haven't tried. Well, uh, that is uh, one of the things that we haven't tried here either at the Culture Caucus, <laughs> where we have a where we have a culture of deception, fraud, <laughs> um and, and a, a constant stream of bullshit from both me and Will. Um, I'll, I'll ask you just to close out real quick here, Sally. How's your bracket? Oh, my God. Well, you know, my bracket, I, I don't even bother to do a bracket to tell you the truth because what's the point? Because it gets busted so quickly every year. You know, I mean, Middle Tennessee, the, the funniest thing is my dad did a bracket and uh, was really, um, he was in this uh, pool where he drew, you know, you draw teams. He drew Middle Tennessee. And he, of course, was furious right up until they beat Michigan State. You know, when he then sat there the whole afternoon saying, God, wouldn't I be mad right now if I'd drawn Michigan State instead, right? Dan Jenkins so, uh, always wins. That's the rule. Dan Jenkins always wins. <laughs> There's a, a, a dollop of sanity. Um, just boycott the bracket. That's probably, possibly, the most un, uh, possibly the most un-American thing I've ever heard anybody say. Um, but, but there's a wisdom to it. I'm, I'm Buddhist about it. I'm into minimizing suffering. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Tell, it to, tell that to President Obama. Sally Jenkins of the Washington Post. Uh, Sally Jenkins of the Washington Post, you are awesome and fantastic, and thank you for doing this. Um, w- Will Leach, uh, you are, well, you are Will Leach. And uh, there are certain uh, positives to that and also certain negatives, but I love you desperately. Uh, and this comes to a conclusion of another episode of the Culture Caucus podcast. Will, um, where can you find this podcast if you want to listen to it? You can, of course, find it on Bloomberg, uh, Bloomberg Politics. You can also find it on iTunes. Just type Culture Caucus into iTunes and also find it on SoundCloud. If you get a chance, please give us a review in iTunes, a positive review. If you give a negative review, I don't even want to even look at your face. But if you give us a positive review, it helps people find the podcast and promotes it on iTunes. But you can find it right. there and all over the place. It's a great place. It's, it's a good podcast. The, the podcast is everywhere you look. It is, it is like air. It is like gravity. It's like water. Well, I'm hoping desperately that the next time we have one of these uh, episodes of Culture Caucus that you and I will be back in the same place face-to-face because, you know, as much as I sometimes give you a hard time, I miss you. And it would be great to see you again a little further down the road. Man love.
Yeah, exactly. Pre- preferably, <laughs> preferably at Mar-a-Lago, where you are right now. I think that would be very fun. Yes. We'll, we'll, we'll we'll do it. Ooh, let's move let's let's move Culture Caucus to Mar-a-Lago. That'd be awesome. <laughs> All right. Um, until next time, Arrivederci. Bye. And sayonara. Brought to you by Oppenheimer Funds, the right way to invest. Explore long-term opportunities at oppenheimerfunds.com. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.